Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, July 7th, 2011, and our special guest tonight is Carol Black, director of the movie Schooling the World. Carol, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Really delighted to have you here. The Future of Education is sponsored by what is now going to be called Blackboard Collaborate, a combination of WIMB and Illuminate coming out this summer. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs. That's at web20labs.com. Coming up in November, our Global Education Conference. Again, November 14th to 18th, five days worldwide, all for free. It is a blast. So if you didn't attend last year, all of the sessions are up, over 400 sessions from 62 countries. Uh, this year we hope for similar or maybe even greater attendance. should be a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education uh, next week, the authors of Educating for Global Competence, a new book out by the Asia Society, and uh, Bill Ferreter on July 21st, Kieran Egan on Learning in Depth, his new book on July 26th. Jane Nelson's coming back on the show. She's the Positive Discipline um, Parenting Book author. And she and Mary McGuire are going to talk about the uh, psychology behind democratic uh, family practices and how they relate to a culture and society which is increasingly becoming democratic because of the internet. I'm very excited about that. So that's coming up. And then Jim Mayfield, I don't know if you know Jim Carroll, but he's done a lot of work in uh, humanitarian work and has a very similar message to yours. He's coming on the show August 4th. And lots more coming up. Hopefully there's something there that is of interest to you. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded. They're in full Illuminate form and also in MP3 portable audio at futureofeducation.com. We heard from Sandy Hirsch at San Jose State University's uh, School of Library and Information Sciences. Uh, on Tuesday, Denise Pope from Stanford um, a week and a half ago, Larry Ferlazzo before that. Lots of fun, all of them up there. Hopefully you will find something worth listening for you. If you haven't been in Illuminate before, it is an environment that encourages you, in which we encourage you to participate. You'll notice you can do that by putting uh, notes in the chat. You can also use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. Smiley face, clapping hand. The hand with the green up arrow will allow you to raise your hand and ask a question of Carol when we go to Q&A. I do find that it's easiest to, to look at the screen with the chat if you go up to view layouts and you switch yourself to the wide layout. So in the top menu structure, view layouts and then shift to the wide layout. I find that's a lot easier to follow the chat. We'll give you your first chance to participate now by letting us know where you're listening from. Look for the wand, that's the stick with the red star at the end to the left of the map. Click on that and then click on the map. And it's fun to have you give a shout out also in the chat. Maybe where you're listening from, the time and the temperature. New Zealand, Hawaii, Alaska, Caribbean, North America, of course. Philadelphia. Oh, good, Joe from Australia. Well, wherever you are listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we really appreciate your being here. So, Carol, it was really delightful for me to learn two things about you. The first was that you had been at Swarthmore. And I don't know if um, when, when you were there, and we won't ask any age questions, but I actually lived on campus because <laughs> my dad was dean of admissions at Swarthmore for some years. Oh, wow. And then, um, uh, of course, then discovering that you were behind the hit TV show, The Wonder Years, that was fit my generation perfectly, and it was very delightful to learn that about you. It's a little dark secret, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about that later. <laughs> okay, so what we thought we would do, we okay. thought we would do is we thought we would start off by showing the trailer for the film. So I'll do that by using a web tour. Sounds uh, good. And I'll also put the link into the chat. Uh, on my blog, actually, before I do that, I'm going to give you the link to my blog in the chat. And Kara was kind enough to allow us to post a link for the full 
uh, download of the movie. And I think that's just up for another day or so. But if you would like to do that, you can download that. Um, and of course, Carol's looking for donations if you like the film. Um, but she was kind enough to, to make that link available. Now, this next link I'm going to put up is actually the trailer. And we'll show that in the web tour. What will happen is the web tour will come up for you. And when you see the, um, there are two trailers. One is standard definition and one is high definition. And you can choose which one you click on to play. But you do need to click on one in your own browser there for that to start. And it's about three minutes. So we're going to let you click now. I'm going to put the timer on. And we'll go quiet for three minutes as you watch the uh, trailer for the film. So I had to close that window. If you were still watching the video or you would started it late, I apologize. But you can go back to the link that's in the chat. Uh, I'll put it in one more time. This is the link for, I didn't send this to this page uh, right off the bat like I said I would. But the link I'm going to give you now has both the standard and the high def versions. And you can watch it later. There is clapping there, Carol. Uh, I felt the same way. The film is largely visual. Um, and the, uh, one of the scenes I loved the most was the billboard with the kids walking in front. Um, tell me a little bit about your choices there in terms of content and visual imagery and how you sort of kept the balance that you felt would make the most difference. Well, you know, we were lucky to have two incredibly talented um, videographers working on the film who are just uh, 
we live most of the time in Telluride, Colorado, which is a small town that just uh, is, is full of photographers. So we had two great, great guys working with us who just brought so much to the, the project with the, the eye they brought to it. And actually, those kids walking in front of the billboard, that just happened completely spontaneously. Jim was framing up to just shoot a shot of the billboard, and the kids just all walked into the shot um, with no direction at all, completely spontaneously. Um, but you know, I, you know, I, it, it's the ideas in the film are a little counterintuitive to a lot of people, and um, it posed a lot of challenges for communication because if you really think about it, a lot of documentaries that you see are really kind of telling you something that you already know, but they're sort of filling it out for you. They're, they're telling you that industrial agriculture is problematic or that we should save the dolphins or something like that. And the documentary just has the job of, of sort of filling in the details and shaping it into a story. But you know, if you're going to make a film about why building schools for children overseas is a bad idea, you, you really have a bit of an uphill battle. And I think the visual part of it was just very important in trying to, um, you know, create uh, the perception that we were, we were looking to create. Well, I loved it. And I will tell you that I actually had a different experience watching the film the first time and the second time. And I think we'll, we'll be able to drill down a little bit on that. What kind of a response are you getting to the movie? You know, it's much more positive than I anticipated, actually. I think a lot of people are coming to the same questions um, on their own, or they have a lot of perceptions or kind of cognitive dissonance that has, has occurred over the years. and. Um, and it's making more sense to people than I actually thought that it would. Um, of course, I do get some some opposition and um, and some people that you know just think it's ridiculous. So it, it sort of runs runs a gamut. But um, a lot of educators, a lot of international educators, um, a lot of people that are working in some of these programs do find that they're having you know, on-the-ground perceptions that, that match up with this, and they feel that it's a topic that does need to be discussed. And really, the, the purpose of the film is to sort of open these questions, raise the question for discussion, because I think it's just uh, not uh, discussed enough. We're, we're simply approaching this issue with, with a kind of set of assumptions and not really having a dialogue about it. And so I think a lot of people are actually welcoming, welcoming the dialogue, whether they completely agree with the film or not. Are, are you able in any way to, to categorize who, who tends to like it and who tends not to? <laughs> um, no, interestingly, it doesn't fall into predictable categories. Um, for example, the International Baccalaureate, you know, which is an internet, the highly esteemed and very standard international um, education you know, organization, has really embraced the film and they're using it in their theory of knowledge classes. Um, uh, some teachers are. And um, they've screened it at their conferences. And then people that you might think would be more sort of coming from an alternative place and might well, don't always, but, but it, it kind of goes all over the place. I think it's a really individual thing. And it either really rings a bell with people or it doesn't. We've talked a lot on the show about the reform, the education reform movement. And, and this plays very nicely into the sort of the larger discussion. But clearly, even within the reform movement, there are really significant polarities between which people play about play with ideas about school reform. And I can see this playing very well with a certain segment of, of people. And, and the sort of test-driven uh, reform movement is, is going to look at this with, with less um, uh, interested eyes. I mean, there is some general truth to that. And um, you know, it was a big, exciting moment for us because uh, when we were at the Vancouver International Film Festival, um, Sir Ken Robinson tweeted about our film, and so we suddenly got a lot of hits, and that was that was sort of a big uh, big thrill because I'm a Sir Ken Robinson fan, and I think a lot of the people who um, are open to Sir Ken's message 
quickly see a connection between what the film is saying and what he's saying, which is basically we need to open up these one-size-fits-all structures. We need to create more flexibility, more diversity, just more options for children rather than sort of putting them through the factory system that um, you know, puts them on the assembly line and, and, and tries to turn out you know, an identical product with every child. So um, the idea of individual diversity in children and learning styles is, is just um, extended by the idea of cultural diversity um, and, and different cultural approaches to, to learning and understanding um, and assimilating knowledge and sharing it. So. You know, I live a lot in this discussion, and it was interesting for me. The first time I watched it, I didn't feel like it was on the fringe, but it was it was a little closer to that edge, and I thought, hmm, I'm not sure how I fully feel about this, in part because I hadn't thought that much about the humanitarian and the sort of non-US dialogue. The second time watching through it, it felt very natural and normal to me, as though my brain had somehow kind of shifted thinking. Um, and so if that's any indication to you, I felt like the film really worked for me in that way. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that happens with education, because education is near and dear to people's hearts, they're very idealistic about it, and yet there's an enormous amount of rhetoric about education, about what's going to happen, about what our goals are and our aspirations for our children and how we're going to achieve them and what are these fabulous things that are going to happen when we do this, that, or the other. And there's a huge gap between the rhetoric and the reality. And actually that's where a show like The Wonder Years comes in and we put a, a montage of uh, comedy films in the, in the movie because, you know, from Mark Twain to, you know, The Simpsons, a lot of comedy comes from that gap between um, people's rhetoric and, and the reality of what's really going on. And so you will sometimes get uh, incisive insights from, you know, comedy or satire that you're not getting from any of the serious discussions that you're li listening to. So um, I think that for me, in a way, uh, making this film is, is an attempt to sort of draw on people's real perceptions about what's really going on and, and say, you know, let's, let's kind of drop the rhetoric for a second and, and let's talk about what really happens. Because, you know, in these, um, whether, it's, whether it's with our schools at home or, or building schools overseas, and one of the, thing, the funny things about, we can be having huge debates about the problems with our schools at home, and yet when we build a school overseas, suddenly we just have this rosy vision that we are bringing nothing but joy and enlightenment and good citizenship and democracy to, to children overseas, and, and it somehow enables us to completely forget the conflict and confusion and doubt and failure that we do experience here at home. So. That's sort of another another side of it. Yes, and I and I really am going to be interested in that because I think there's a something of a clue there in terms of how we operate cognitively when we think we're helping. Um, do you have a favorite scene in the movie? Gosh, um, you know, I don't know. I have I have a couple of favorite characters. I love I love the little girl Rahela, and um, I guess she her name isn't on the screen, but the little girl who talks about speaking English, and I love the the young man in the green hat who talks about uh, missing his home, um, and you know I I love all the people we interviewed and, and the things they have to say. So I don't know it's hard to say if I have a, a favorite scene. I, I'll tell you that my favorite scene were actually were actually the clips during the end credits where you have the, what may be uh -huh. some traditional dancing or having fun. And uh, you know, it's hard not to kind of see a parallel between that sort of honest, authentic enjoyment that they seem to be experiencing and this message about uh, traditional lifestyles. Yeah, well, it's funny because sometimes actually what those people were doing was um, they were making fun of Bollywood movies. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were sort of singing and dancing and and joking around about <laughs> about uh, some things they had seen in Bollywood movies, but um, but 
I think there's sort of a funny thing because some people will say, oh, you're romanticizing the traditional culture because you're just showing how beautiful it is. And, and it's like, well, you know, it's really, really beautiful there. And, um, and the developed parts of Ladakh are, you know, pretty gross. Um, there's just a lot of garbage and, and a lot of problems that appear with development. But, um, but I do think that there's this whole debate of, well, are you, are you romanticizing the traditional people? You're not um, talking about the problems that they have, disease or infant mortality or anything like that. And, you know, the thing is that everybody has problems. Everybody is human. There is nothing you can do on this earth that just sort of fixes life and makes everybody fine. So people in traditional cultures may have, you know, a, typhoid or, or infant mortality, things that are pretty easily dealt with actually by with, you know, antibiotics and, and certain basic information about germ theory. And um, but in our, you know, in, in developed cultures you have higher rates of suicide and higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse and higher rates of obesity and diabetes and higher rates of family and community breakdown. And so everybody has problems. And, you know, we can't come from our society where we have, you know, millions of children on antidepressants and, um, and stimulants and, you know, families that are just, you know, falling apart, kids that are really struggling in a lot of ways. And I don't mean to put down American kids. There's great kids, but we have a lot of problems. It's a complicated situation that we have here. It is not, you know, paradise. And we think we can just go to another culture and fix their problems. Well, we're just going to, we're going to just, we're going to change their problems. We're going to, we're going to bring, you know, thousands and thousands of changes to this society. And a lot of what we're going to do is maybe take away a couple of their old problems and then bring a lot of our problems to them. So just this whole notion of sort of seeing people as complex human beings, as our equals, as people who have strengths and weaknesses just like anybody else, and ha they have good and bad you know, parts to their life just like anybody else, I think has to be the, the basis of the discussion. And then we can talk seriously about whether we have something to offer that's of benefit or whether they have something to offer us that would be of benefit to us. So completely different films, but um, School in the World reminded me of the movie The Corporation that looks sort of at the psychological issues associated with corporate uh, lifestyle. And it, you know, it feels to me there is this sort of deeper story there of what kinds of things are we trying to do psychologically when we are taking our uh, culture and, and believing that it's going to make things better for others. Yeah, I mean, um, it's... I, I believe it's a real blind spot. I believe it is a form of cultural superiority that is akin to racism. I, I do believe that it is a very, very serious blind spot in our society that we are coming at other people. You know, I have a friend who works for the World Bank and she did what, you know, said what a lot of people will say, which is, oh, I was in this village in Nigeria where they had never had education. And, you know, as Wade Davis says in the film, everybody has education. Education is the process whereby adults pass on their knowledge to their children so that their children can be functioning adults. And when we say that, that another culture has no education, that is just one of the most profoundly arrogant things that you could possibly say about another group of people. So um, they don't have our form of education and they're not teaching our curriculum. Um, but I, I read a really, um, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting who said it. Was it, it was a, a, a American Indian, gosh, I'm really forgetting if it's Vine Deloria or if it's Gregory Cajete, both of whom have written books about uh, Native American education. And, you know, what they said is basically our society has not found a coherent way of living in the world that brings you know, both human happiness and balance with nature. And that was kind of the basis of Native American society, Native American knowledge, which of course is not to say that Native American people are perfect and have no, no flaws, but um, the problem is that people in modern societies really have not found a way of living that works 
you know, we're destroying the planet and we, we really need to make some serious changes. So, you know, the idea that we're going to come and bring our form of education to everybody else and get them to be more like us is, is really kind of um, misbegotten. So when I was in high school, I went on an exchange program. I lived in Brazil for a year. And I give a lot of credit to my Brazilian host family for being patient with me as, as I saw everything through the eyes of America being better or, or the United States being better. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went, you know, I, my, you know, um, I see sort of a personal history of transformation within myself at, during that period of time in terms of thinking about um, my perceptions and the influence of the United States on other cultures. Uh, what was your story? What's the history here? How did you um, come to this material? Uh, are you willing to tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think this kind of thing always has, you know, multiple roots. Um, and I, I've been, you know, I've had a problem <laughs> with institutional education really since the first grade when I saw what it was doing to a girl who was my best friend and the two of us got our report cards and I was one of those kids that always got good grades and my friend was getting, um, you know, C's and I, I can, like I can see it like, it like it's in front of me now watching this little girl open up this piece of paper and look at these letters and this kind of shadow falls across her face. And, you know, really it never left. Um, I have always, as a child, I've always liked the kids who don't get the good grades, sometimes because they're too rebellious, sometimes because they're too, uh, you know, have too good of a sense of humor, they're too creative, they're too funny, they're too independent, they're too, um, and, and sometimes actually just because they're in stressful life situations, which is something that you can't underestimate. The kids are getting penalized with bad grades because their parents are getting divorced or because someone died in their family or because there's alcoholism or, you know, some type of domestic, you know, conflict or abuse. Kids are getting bad grades because of this. And when you think about what that does to them, uh, the suffering and the, the damage that it does to those children, um, for some reason, that has troubled me from childhood. But the thing, and so I studied education in college, but you know, quickly realized that those things are, are structured into it, and it's not going to be necessarily something that an individual can do much about within the system that we have. And so I, you know, I decided in the end not to not to get my teaching certificate, and went on and did other things. Um, but um, there was really a turning point. Um, our first child was born severely brain damaged. And she ultimately did not live more than a few weeks. But when she was in the hospital, which was a prestigious hospital, you know, um, there was something that I noticed. They have all these babies in plastic boxes and they have them all hooked up to um, this does come back to education. They have them all hooked up to monitors, which are, you know, sort of measuring their distress. Um, because we are obsessed with measuring, you know, everything. And, but what I discovered was when they gave me my baby to hold, her heart rate and her breathing rate, which were all over the place because she had damage to her brainstem, they stabilized. And this was a consistent effect. It happened again and again and again. Um, she would be, you know, her breathing would stop, her heart rate would be very unstable. I would hold her in my arms and it would stabilize. So, you know, later on I began to research that phenomenon and that took me quickly to, and found that there are in fact several studies that, uh, that document this effect and there's a, a small movement called kangaroo care to have which I think is odd, it should be human care, it's to have, you know, newborns in hospitals be held by their, their, their parents instead of put into plastic boxes. So, um, and, and it's well documented that that improves their health and they grow faster, they sleep better, they get better faster. And so, you know, two things came out of that. I thought, I'm living in a group of people that are completely out of their minds. We're very disconnected from something because 
I'm supposed to be in one of the mo most prestigious hospitals in America, and they don't seem to know this. And then later I discovered that um, two people told me that this was because neonatal intensive care is a profit center for the hospital. But so I, I just thought, okay, there's problems in our culture. We are disconnected to some fundamental things about children. And as I began to research this topic, it took me to quickly to researching about traditional cultures who, of course, all hold their babies. And they'll have beliefs like, um, they'll have a, have a belief like, for example, that the young child's spirit isn't fully embedded in their body until age three and they need to stay close to the parents until that time because otherwise their spirit can wander off or get lured away too easily. And you know, so we would tend in our society, our scientific society, we would tend to categorize that as a superstition. But you know, it correlates very well with research about sudden infant death and sleep patterns and how they're affected by um, proximity to uh, the, the mother's body. And um, so I, I began to just try to research more about how traditional cultures um, raise their children. And you know, this led ultimately to uh, researching about, about education. It's difficult to find that information because a lot of sort of anthropologists and people who study cultures are men and they don't seem to think that child rearing is an important part of studying another culture. But, but there are some, um, some sources of information. And you know, I became increasingly interested in, in learning about this. So there's, there's just things in most traditional cultures. First of all, you don't have this huge split between you know, subjects and between the sort of spiritual and moral and ethical environment in which the child is is growing and and the knowledge that they're expected to come to understand. You don't separate children from nature. You don't put them, you know, indoors all day, of course. You don't segregate them by age for the most part. There's some limited age segregated activities that, that happen in different cultures, but for the most part, you know, children learn very easily and well from older children, um, but also from grandparents and adults and from being immersed in adult activity rather than segregated in a building away from adult activity. Um, so there's just a number of features about the way many, I mean, all traditional, there's 6,000 cultures in the world and they're all different, but there are some common features that you see again and again that, um, seem to make sense in terms of being just a really well-grounded way for adults to relate to children and you know, help them learn the things that they need to know to become functioning adults. Carol, because you're a moderator, you may be seeing some of the private chat that's taking place there. And it's more than usual. And if it's disturbing to you or hard to concentrate, you can go to the top of the chat area and click the drop down and just show the public chat. <laughs> it will look more. It'll look much more uh, <laughs> encouraging. So, um, okay. did did you you quote from or reference on the website? Uh, you know, some very interesting names. Uh, Chomsky is listed there. John Holt. Um, did did you come to this material after the movie, or have you been involved in kind of the homeschool movement or in other movements where you've been looking at education before the the movie took shape? Well, you know, I read John Holt and Chomsky in college and, um, and have continued to read a, a lot from, you know, those, those authors, Ivan Illich and, um, you know, through the years. And I have been involved in the You know, the, it's my other Oh, journey. it's not a secret here. <laughs> in fact, one of the interesting parts about the interview series has been over the course of the last three years, the degree to which uh, we're much more willing to talk about the influence of homeschooling and the, and the values of it than, than I feel like three years ago was possible. Um, the Illich essay or speech that's on the website was kind of stunning to me. It really, I mean, I, I read it <laughs> word for word carefully. Um, uh, and, I, and I guess that sort of brings us to this whole question of humanitarian work um, in, in the broader scope of humanitarian work and then specifically schooling. And I'd like to give a chance for you to kind of, you know, we've, we've chatted and kind of set the stage here for you to tell the story a little bit more 
clearly. But what is the white man's burden? What's the context? And, and what have we been doing that's been uh, arguably so harmful? Well, you know, the white man's burden is the reference to the Rudyard Kipling poem that was, you know, written during the first big push of American imperialism in the early part of the 20th century when um, it became a, this very overt part of U.S. policy to claim that we were helping other countries by conquering them. And um, when, you know, McKinley made the decision to essentially assimilate the Philippines, um, he, you know, quickly after uh, killing, you know, half a million people or somewhere between half a million and two million people, there he um, he sent you know these troop ships full of teachers to oh dear sorry about that I thought, I thought that wasn't going to ring <laughs> not to worry okay production values here I'm sure uh, the production me? values here I'm sure are much lower than you're used to. No, this is good. This is good. We've been working low budget for a while now. So, um, so it has it has been this this part of of U.S. policy, and and of course when we forced Native Americans into um, boarding schools in the 19th century and going on into the 20th century, and with the very overt aim of destroying their culture, it was claimed that that was for their, you know, for their benefit that we were doing that because, of course, they were savages and they were ignorant and they needed, you know, the benefits of civilization. So um, what's happened is that the, the imperialistic aims of the U.S. have been, well, you know, you can have an active political debate about the imperialistic aims of the U.S. And in any case, it's become politi politically incorrect for uh, you know a modern power to overtly conquer another country. So help becomes and aid does become a part of an agenda to gain control and influence in regions around the world. And um, that doesn't mean that everyone who's providing that aid is in a Machiavellian way, you know, sneakily trying to, you know, take over this country. I think a lot of the people who are directly providing the aid are, you know, very genuinely well-intentioned, but when you look at the way the international agencies are working and the World Bank and the IMF and the different international agencies, you know, education and aid is, is clearly a part of an attempt to gain influence and control. So, uh, you know, we're, we're really concerned about the education of girls in countries where we want their oil, and we're not concerned about the education of girls in Saudi Arabia where um, they're providing us with oil. So um, there's, there is a, uh, a political dimension. I think you do a really good job of, kind of communicating the degree to which uh, individual motivations can be very pure. I mean, uh, they're, they're not Machia Machiavellian, but at the same time, the, the result um, is not what it should be or could be, and that there is um, a need for people to, and I'm going to pull the quote up here specifically because I really love this. Um, you say one of the main premises of the film premises of the film is that we do great harm when we think we have all the answers that in fact the dialogue between cultures must be conducted with what the Buddhist tradition calls the beginner's mind, an attitude of openness, questioning, and listening, not with an attitude of expertise that entitles us to prescribe solutions for other people. So, um, Yeah, I, I really think that needs to be a big part of how we approach every child. I, I was just going to say, I think that needs to be a big part of how we approach every child, because I think we, we harm children when we think we know exactly what they need and, you know, don't um, listen and sort of see them for who they are as individuals, again, rather than approaching them with a preconceived 
agenda of what we're going to do and to so you for them. Beautifully weaved that. Well, no, there's a little bit of a lag. But I'm sorry, I'm interrupted. So I yeah. apologize if I talked over you. You, you weave that back into. Uh, both in the uh, film, but maybe even more so in the study guide that's on the website, into just the idea of um, school industrialized or um, traditional uh, institutional education, no, no matter if it's taking place in another country or in our own. And um, I'm interested in the um, uh, the way in which you portrayed several of the interviews you. You, um, you don't actually know until the, the person being interviewed kind of gets into their comments whether or not this is an example of the positive or the negative. But certainly, there's the woman who starts the school in Ladakh. Um, and you, you're very good at sort of giving her full measure of telling her story. But you, but you give us the opportunity to conclude that may not actually be very good for them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Some people have felt that um, it was unfair to her to juxtapose those images with what she's saying. Um, but uh, I actually did try at one point to simply, you know, cut her um, interview together without as much editorial juxtaposition. And you know, and people just don't. They, they. I was trying to think, how can I? How can I get people to at least for a minute see this the way I see it? Um, because she was a she was a very nice lady. She's very warm-hearted and caring. Um, and of course, some of her phrases uh, may come across a little bit um, differently because of the the translation. Because English is obviously not her first language, and an English-speaking person might have chosen slightly different words, perhaps. But um, but. Uh, but yeah, I you know I didn't want to um, to tell people what to think, but I do think we need to again juxtapose the rhetoric to the reality. You know, we're we're taking these kids out of the fields, like she would say, working in the field. She would talk about working in the fields as though it was a terrible fate. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with what's wrong with farming as a livelihood? Is you know these people live in a beautiful place. They're farming. They're self-sufficient. Um, but she referred to it as working in the fields, as though that was a very demeaning thing, and you would want to do anything that you could to to save a child from a life of working in the fields. And but for her, getting a job in a call center, um, you know, dealing with the irate customers of United Airlines, was a better fate than that. And actually, it's very hard to get footage of a call center. But um, but. Uh, you know, I did want to raise that question: Is this really a better life that that kids are getting as a result? So it feels of, to me uh, like it goes even education. further than that. And again, kind of weaving the, the the story of the impact of schooling on these particular societies and the larger uh, institutional schooling. But you um, you talk about the invention of failure, and I love the now knowing the story of your friend. But clearly, when we when we hold out examples of individuals in these societies who have succeeded, become a doctor, you point out that we're missing the piece of all of the students who didn't become the doctor and who now feel like failures, where failure wasn't actually a part of their social construct in their village. Yeah, and it's a funny thing because you know we think of ourselves as this you know democratic society, and we're bringing democracy around the world, and isn't that great? But the reality is, we're an extremely hierarchical society. We have extremes of of wealth and poverty. Obviously, the worst poverty isn't in this country; it's it's overseas. But um, we have an extremely divided hierarchical society on an economic level. And there's sort of a funny phenomenon where it's like, you know, rich people are supposed to socialize with other rich people, I guess, so they won't feel guilty or something. And so you often have people who socialize within their social class. And I actually think to some extent this begins in school because of the resentments that are created by the hierarchy of grading the sort of hurt and then resentment that, that that generates, you tend to have 
you know, and, and obviously sometimes there's tracking in a school system. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert. Um, but you, you, you almost tend to have this thing where the smart kids are supposed to be friends with the other smart kids and the, you know, dumb kids are supposed to be friends with the other dumb kids. And again, <laughs> I, said, I always liked the kids that didn't get good grades. I always felt like they had more life in them somehow. And, um, and it, it really troubles me the sense that what you're supposed to do as you go through school is you're supposed to strive to be better than other people. And then um, when you, if you succeed in doing that, you're supposed to sort of cut off from caring about the people who haven't done as well. So you're supposed to kind of disconnect from caring about the hurt that is being experienced by the children who are being told that they're inferior to you. And I have to say, I think it's one of the most shocking and depressing things about our culture is how rare it is to find somebody who was an A student who was troubled by that, by what was going on. People tend to believe that there's a reality to it, an inevitability to it, and a kind of appropriateness to it. And the damage that is done to the kids who are on the losing end of this, I believe is child abuse. It, it, it lasts a lifetime and it damages their lives um, in ways that don't heal. So um, I really believe that um, this ranking of children is a harmful thing and it does not exist in other cultures. Now, all you have to do to see how it can work is to look at the fields of human endeavor that are outside of the school system. Because if somebody can beautifully play the jazz saxophone, I don't feel diminished by that because I was never required to play the jazz saxophone and it, it in no way belittles me or diminishes me that I can't play the jazz saxophone. So I can just take pleasure in their achievement and you know, be, well, thank God somebody can do that and thank God I don't have to do it. That's great for me. I'd rather do other things. So the fact that one person can do something better than another doesn't have to be something that's diminishing. But um, you know, I sort of feel the same way about algebra. It's like, thank God somebody can do algebra and thank God I don't have to do it. Um, I could do it if I had to, but I, I much prefer not to. So why we have chosen some subjects, some, these, we've chosen these little dimensions of human endeavor, required them of all children, and then ranked children, you know, in those fields of endeavor as though they were somehow central to, you know, life on Earth. And it's really quite arbitrary what we've chosen to rank the children on and what we, you know, choose to ignore in the rankings. So, and of course, Ken Robinson's um, beef is that the arts are considered less valuable than, you know, the sciences and the analytical verbal um, skills. So, um, but there's, there's many other things. There's many other dimensions of life beyond, you know, the arts as well. So just are you, are you generous? Are you loyal? Are you courageous? You know, are you spiritually aware? Are you in touch with nature? Um, you know, do you enjoy your day? There's so, so, many, so many different dimensions that, that make a good person. And we've chosen these narrow fields, rank children, and you know, wind up making them feel there's really deeply something wrong with them. So I want to ask one more thing. question before we go to Q&A, but we are going to go to Q&A. So if you've had a question you would like to ask Carol, keep it in mind. You can either put it in the chat or you can raise your hand to take the microphone. So um, I'm going to use a phrase that I first encountered in Noam Chomsky, and I don't know if he was the first to use it, but it's this idea of speaking truth to power. And it feels as though the internet has really reshaped uh, power dynamics, the ability to sort of challenge institutional messaging or narratives. And I think we're seeing that in, in a lot of places, and certainly we're seeing it in education. At the same time, it, it also feels like the internet feeds into what you or, or is referred to in some material in the, around the movie, into the human monoculture. I mean, with Facebook having 750 million members, you know, it feels as though it were, were the internet is it both one at the same time liberating us and also creating some of the problems. How do you, what's your view of the technological changes that are taking place, maybe the positives or, and or negatives, and are there ways you're thinking about how to uh, make sure we use them in ways that are thoughtful? 
Well, you know, the interesting thing about the internet is it's sort of bigger than all of us, and um, therefore it's not susceptible to the sort of top-down, you know, it, as you're pointing out, it's not susceptible to kind of the top-down control. And I, I do think that it's important that we fight the efforts of some of the, you know, companies that are sort of trying to get control over the internet. Um, you know, there's the, there's the tendency towards monoculture that just comes from communication. But I think at a certain point, we can't worry about that. We can't try to stop the flow of communication. And if anything, I think open communication, you know, needs to be seen. Um, I can't see, you know, a role for trying to control that in any way. Um, I do think that there there are sort of future potentials for. Um, the internet to provide more flexible uh, ways of learning and having access to information for people in traditional cultures so that they don't necessarily have to make this decision to be all day long in a brick and mortar school. They could still be nomads and, and ride their horses and herd sheep and maybe there's an application where they can learn, you know, to read or learn a language or learn some mathematics if that's what they, you know, they want to do. Um, so it can be more of a vehicle for people having access to information in a way that doesn't need to be controlled and dictated from above. Um, so um, yeah, I you know obviously it's going to just evolve the way it evolves, and you know cultures do always change. So I, I sort of ha at a certain point I throw up my hands and I'm kind of philosophical about that because. Um, I think that the thing that concerns me more is the overt use of power and money, um, the overt use of advertising to create feelings of inferiority or insecurity in people, the overt use of uh, political power to take away people's land. I mean, this is all over the world. Um, traditional people's land rights are under assault. And you know, so this is a very real aggressive thing. I, at a certain point, I think we have to f uh, focus on, on those, uh, those uh, you know, very real aggressive um, measures that are being instituted against traditional people. Again, who are going to get their forests cut down for timber and their mountains blown up for mining and their rivers polluted or dammed and are going to just uh, lose their way of life because they're losing their land. So, you know, if the internet, you know, creates a certain degree of monoculture, you know, I just don't know. I think new subcultures. So I like that will answer, rise. and you've made a connection for me that I'm going to be thinking about all night. Uh, in many ways, you know, one of the first things that villages ask for, I'm told by those friends of ours who work in humanitarian organizations, is that they'll ask for a school. And, and also, in many ways, I think. Uh, those of us who've grown up in American culture will often sort of in a very reflexive way defend the things that uh, you've just described that may actually be political or business power, but we've become accustomed to them and we think that they have more value than, than maybe they do. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm intrigued by kind of the cognitive issue there um, and how we kind of open those conversations to, to think about our lives in ways that are um, thoughtful of uh, traditional learning. So if you have a question for Carol, uh, we've got uh, about five, six minutes left. Um, I'll, Fred Bartles asked one early on that I promised him I would um, send, for, send to you. And he was curious as to what you think about Hans Rosling's ideas about development. That's not a reference I know, but maybe you do. You know, I have seen Hans Rosling's TED talk where he shows the graphic representations about poverty and vaccinations and things like that. I think I don't re recall it really um, clearly enough, to, I think, to respond okay, to Okay, and the maybe Fred could put some more information or links for us to follow up later. Uh, Richard wants to know if you have any examples of schools that worked really well. That worked really well. You know, I think that um, again, sort of what my position about this is is that it's the idea that there's people all over the place that are happy with their schools, whether it's in our culture and I'm sure in some places overseas. It's really just the idea that everyone should therefore do the same thing. You know, just like there are 
people that are very happy being Christian, but that doesn't mean that everyone should be a Christian. So um, my point is not to say that all schools are always bad or always evil or never meet people's needs. My point is just that there is no one model that should be assumed to meet everyone's needs and, and therefore sort of imposed on everyone as though it's a universal virtue. Infomeister is asking, we also have a multi-regional multi nation which we tend to forget. How do you think this can be addressed, including regional needs? Um, well, again, you know, I think that um, there's a there's a really interesting book written by a constitutional scholar named Stephen Ahrens called A Short Route to Chaos, and he wrote it after uh, the controversy of, over Goals 2000. And um, his point that the title, A Short Route to Chaos, is a quote from Sir Thomas More, who just before he was executed for you know being Catholic under the reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, unless, that, unless it was a different reign. I can't remember. In any case, he, um, he, uh, he just said that to, try, to have the government try to dictate matters of conscience is a short route to chaos. It creates conflict. So what you have to do is you have to give people freedom of religion. And Aaron's is essentially arguing that education should have been included in the First Amendment. There should have been freedom of education. There should have been a prohibition. I don't know if he takes it that far, but he basically says education is a First Amendment issue because the Supreme Court once ruled in a in a case that um, that that the principle behind the First Amendment is that the government should not interfere in matters of spirit or intellect. So therefore, we have freedom of religion, we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of the press, we have freedom of assembly, but what do any of those mean if the government is entitled to mold the minds of our, chil of, of our children? So he says education is a matter of conscience, which also means that reasonable people may differ. Reasonable people may differ about religion, politics, you know, how to, how to raise children in all kinds of ways. Reasonable people may differ about education. And if you create a legal government structure that act, asks everyone to agree about education, you're just going to generate conflict. And I actually do believe that this is a root cause of some of the political polarization that has gone on in this country, is, is the attempt to sort of impose a culture on our multi-regional multi nation through schooling. Because you'll go, every small town in America will have, I mean, I live in a, in a you know, town of 2,000 people and there's six different churches. And, you know, in, there'll be churches, synagogues, temples, there'll be, you know, multiple ways to worship, but not necessarily the same number of ways to educate your kids. But people do actually have just as many different legitimate opinions about how to educate children as they do about religious belief. So I actually think it would be a more diverse, peaceful, interesting country if we simply accepted diversity in education as, as a, a founding principle of a free society. So Carol, we've reached the top of the hour, and one of our commitments to our guests is to finish on time. Um, there was a question from Alice that got left hanging there. If somebody <laughs> wanted to contact you independently, can they do so through the website? Yes, there's, so a, it's, there's uh, a contact page on the website. schoolingtheworld.org. Uh, Carol, thank me. you so much. I'm going to clap for you here. This is a delightful hour. I yes. really appreciate the film. appreciate uh, being able to spend some time with you talking about it. Uh, really appreciate your perspective and the thoughtfulness with which you are talking about the topic. Uh, coming up on the future of education uh, next week, uh, our look at educating for global competence, uh, then Bill Ferreter the week after, and Kieran Egan on learning in depth. Carol, thank you. That was terrific. And, and are you going to leave the film up for our audience for one more day? It was a pleasure. Is that okay with you? <laughs> you know, I'll leave it up for a while. Yeah, you can you can download it and share it with your friends. I, you know, I'm obviously I'm for piracy because I'm you know <laughs> for uh, 
for all kinds of things. So uh, yeah, I'm not too worried about. I I'd like people to see the film, and I'm not too and, worried about. But you about would be glad the, to accept donations, money, so. correct? Yeah, I mean, if you want to, you can go onto the website and and pay for the film through the the website, and maybe leave a little note on your purchase form that you already already downloaded it if you like. We okay. don't actually well, have thank to you again. Anybody. Thanks so much for coming so. tonight. Thanks for a fascinating topic and for uh, work that um, is making a difference. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, the, I'll pause the recording now and it will get posted later tonight and uh, we'll look forward to future activities together. Thanks and good night. Thanks. <laughs>